Vintage timepieces are more than watches. They are true constants in an ever-changing world. For some, they are collectibles, and for others, generational heirlooms attached to familial stories. In this episode, Kevin is joined by Jacek Kosebek, founder of Tropical Watch. Jacek is a world-renowned dealer of vintage timepieces, and joined us on the podcast to share his story and a look at this unique marketplace. Well, I'm joined today by Yasek Kasubek, the founder and owner of Tropical Watch. And Yasek, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. No, I'm, it's a pleasure to you know be on your podcast. Well, I don't think it's often that we find a chance to speak with someone in such a unique space like yours and really someone who's a leading expert in vintage watches in the country and throughout the world. If you would just share with our audience, how did you get into doing this and how did you find a love for the space? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the I started out of college to work for a company in sales that had nothing to do with watches. And we were actually a company that did recycled electronic waste. And I was a person that dealt with, you know, like the like Bank of America and like Genentech to sort of like get rid of their old computers and lab equipment. And in that space, I worked with uh, another colleague that was a cubicle buddy of mine. And he sat across from me and he, during the day, most of the time he was just messing around and, and, and buying and selling watches while at work. And, and it was fascinating because I never thought that that would be a, like an option in life. You know what I mean? I, I never thought that you could go online and you could go to the same place that you sell a product and buy a product and actually make a little bit of money in between. So I was sort of introduced to the world of watches because I think in general, luxury watches or watches that are expensive, it's not a young man's game. You sort of have to be sort of in your 20s to be able to kind of afford this stuff. That, and, you know, like, you know, if your parents give you some money, if you get a watch, that's one thing. But a lot of us that have kind of fallen sort of collecting these kind of watches, just like cars, just like maybe antique guns or anything like that, you kind of sort of have to be a little bit more mature to be in a space. And so... I don't want to make this too long, but it was, the long answer is I became fascinated with my friend. We quit our day jobs and we started a company called 10 Past 10 Time Pieces in the mid 2000s. And, and it kind of just, I just kind of ran with it. And everyone around me in my life was telling me I should do something else. I should go to law school. But I kind of stuck with it just because it was so enjoyable to me. And, um, and fast forward 16, years here we are today um or 17 years here we are today and 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 i've been doing it full time since then very cool very cool well i know personally I, if if you were up to it sharing some of your personal background just how you ended up even before that point in the united states and you know your family's journey to where you are i, I think that really potentially could shape a lot of where where you are and what you do today as well yeah, you know, we could, you know, like we could definitely dive into this sort of like, you know, I, I was born in Poland and, you know, my wife makes fun of me when I tell the story. She calls it the refugee story. But, technically, <laughs> you know, like we're political refugees that sort of escaped Poland during the 80s through Italy, where we got a political asylum. And then we came to the United States in, uh, in the mid 80s. And so I think the, you know, like I was, I was never in a position 
to be around watches. I was never in a position to be able to afford watches. You know, like it's very humble beginnings, especially when you sort of migrate from a country that has no financial kind of connection to the new country. There was, you know, like even though my parents had a home and were fairly well off in Poland, you couldn't just arrive here and say, hey, can you can you wire me some money? Because the financial system is basically like leaving North Korea where yeah. you couldn't take anything with you. And even when we were leaving the country, to go on vacation to Yugoslavia, they check everything. Like they check into your entire car. You can't bring photo albums with you. You can't bring a warm jacket because they're like, why do you bring a jacket if you're going to go to a beach vacation in Yugoslavia? It was, and even it was a very special situation that my parents weren't considered a flight risk to leave Poland because we had enough money that we they didn't think that we were going to leave and not come back so mm-hmm. when we left we kind of sort of left with the clothes on our back for a summer vacation and so when we got to the united states also because both my parents didn't speak english it was it was the classic immigrant story my father was a mechanical engineer who started working construction my mom was uh, had a masters in administration and she started working at a hotel cleaning hotel rooms so it was it was very very humble beginnings you know highly educated very motivated parents that took big risks to get us here and that drove my my intensity to kind of like kind of trying to make something you know of myself so i grew up kind of hustling stuff you know when i was in college i bought and sold cars on craigslist to make money i've always appreciated sort of that kind of like excitement of arbitrage that excitement of sales the excitement of like putting it all in and trying to do something so watches even though I went to college and I graduated and worked in this, as a salesperson in a company, they were sort of like a, maybe a little bit of an outlet to be able to kind of like continue that sort of put everything on black kind of moment. Mm-hmm. And I still feel like that sometimes. I still feel like I'm hustling, even though like I've been doing it for a long time and now at a high level, it's still like, it still feels exciting to me. So that's why one of the reasons I still do it. Yeah, well, I I would say that the the hustle never really ends, right? I think that is, um, you know, in in the hustle in the sense that you're you're just moving quickly and you're getting things done. You're just doing it at a different level than you did before. You know, shifting gears. Thank you for that background, by the way. I was I always like to hear the background when we have interesting founders. I mean, the the purpose of the podcast and why we call it uncorrelated minds is we're trying to find people who don't think like the crowds and really this business is so unique and your background so unique i really enjoy hearing that speaking of people who think differently tell me about the people who buy vintage watches you know is is there a specific reason one person buys them over another what types and of people buy these watches and for what reasons i think the the demographic of customers in the last like 15 years has changed dramatically. I think initially back in the day when we used to source these watches, they weren't as popular. The watch world was sort of there and, you know, just budding on the internet. The majority of our big pieces that we sold, we sourced throughout the United States. Sometimes I would have to get on an airplane and fly to Atlanta or some small airport in the Midwest. Cause I think in the beginning people were very nervous about like letting selling something and sending it online. And then so I would fly and pick up these watches that we would sometimes win on eBay, or I got a call from a person that had the watch and I needed to take a look at it. And then we would mostly sell to Europe. We would sell to collectors in Europe that really kind of appreciated these watches. And we would source and buy them from very interesting people 
in that bought them in the 60s and 70s and 80s not as luxury items that would increase in value but really as just tools that they needed i meet i would meet a lot of military guys i met a lot of uh special forces guys i met a lot of pilots um that i bought watches from people that bought them in the px store and so there was a lot of these watches available in the united states but there was a big market in europe and sort of as we started evolving the internet and things like instagram and the forums started becoming a lot more popular and the demographic of customers shifted dramatically a lot more people in asia started buying watches a lot more younger people started buying watches there was a moment in time where if you told someone you're a watch dealer they would just kind of joke around with you and tell you like i have a cell phone no one needs a watch but then it shifted from being sort of like a pragmatic tool to being sort of like more of a statement you know what i mean like you can get a prius i always like car analogies because i think it's very simple for people you could always get a car that has utility to it and it's the same people that buy like a vintage car you're not necessarily buying something better you're buying something that is a little bit different you don't want to be you know like it's like the girl two girls show up in the party in the same dress kind of thing there oh, are yeah. a lot of people that feel this need to sort of like always be a little bit away from sort of like the center you know of the bell curve of fashion uh of like automobiles you know like the idea there's a lot more kind of stuff out there in the world but there's very few things that you could wear as as especially as a man and a lot more customers are women which is fantastic but generally speaking majority of my customers are men buying from themselves and so there isn't that much stuff that you could kind of like put on and enjoy there's some watches there's some cars and maybe there's some other a little bit hobbies but it 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 sort of became a thing and it became a thing for a much bigger demographic and then now watches are very mainstream there's big blogs that talk about them there's magazines celebrities wear them it's it's a thing that i was a little bit lucky to fallen into on sort of like on its the tides are going up on all the stuff so gotcha but tell me about tell me about the name tropical watch where does that come from and give us a background on on where that that stems from yeah so you know like so my evolution in the space i started my specialty was vintage rolex and the the within the sort of the, the rolex line of watches there is a specific subset of collecting where the dials the faces of the watches and also the bezels and sort of like the kind of patina with age but they also start turning different colors so a black dial would turn to a rich brown tone a bezel which was black from in production over time faded to like this kind of sort of charcoal light gray tone and that space and that kind of like very specific subset of collecting was always very fascinating to me because i loved how something so inorganic could can fade like could like have a life have change dramatically um over time and still be very appealing. So so it's so tropical watch is a play on words because one I really like well I hope everyone likes going on vacation. I really like going on vacation. Somewhere warm, somewhere nice. I really like Hawaii. I really like the sort of like the kind of vibe of like Hawaiian shirts and and kind of like wearing sandals and like just watching the sunset, something that you know we a lot of us, you know, because we stay in offices don't get to do a lot. It it's a very calming idea for me. And it's also tropical tropical dials or tropical watches became a um became a 
sort of like the na- nickname that like the brown dials and all the distress dials sort of like mm-hmm. were called. So I wanted a company that was very easy to, to remember and spell. And so that's why Tropical Watch. Because if you tell someone, what's your company name? Tropical Watch. They could spell tropical and they could spell watch. I didn't want it to be named Yatsik Swatches or, you know, or or some kind of like very complicated term. It's, it's a very easy thing to remember, which I think that when people are founding companies, it's I think it's important to kind of like start something that's very easy to pronounce and spell, which is hard to do. But later, it makes your life a lot easier. Yeah, no, I know. I should have followed that advice myself. I, I think- <laughs> Most people ask me what Cenocera Capital means to begin with. So that should have been some advice I followed, but uh, it does lead to a cool story and cool conversations, but you have to get over that hurdle. And whenever I give my email address out, everyone's like, can can you just forward me your email and I'll reply to it? I say, yeah, don't worry about it. I know. I think that stems from sort of the, uh, that stems from sort of the, my name is complicated. And when you tell people what's your name, Yasek, and and how do you spell it? It's spelled J A C E K. It's not phonetically English, yeah. so it throws people off. And it's always like this, like extra kind of thing that I have to kind of explain. And so whenever, whenever, like I, I think of something like a company name, I just want it simple. Even my kid, I named him Parker. You know what I mean? No <laughs> one's gonna be like, I spell Parker. That's funny. Yeah, we we went fairly easy on our kids' names too, uh, uh, mainly because I was worried about remembering them after five. So, uh, <laughs> well, let's shift gears just a touch. I know that, like in many other markets, finding true pieces, true timepieces that aren't counterfeit or haven't been messed with, uh, you know parts replaced with other different parts. How do you go about really ensuring the kind of credibility of the watch itself? I think in art, we call it provenance, right? It's like, how do you ensure that this watch is actually the watch with all the parts that it started from in the beginning? Well, I think, I think, you know, you're talking about art. There's, there's two, there is there is a component of art. There is a component of provenance that is very important. But unlike art, which every piece is unique in in the sense, the watches are a production piece. There are certain very specific timeframes where certain dials would fit a certain case or certain bezel type would fit a, uh, a certain watch. And, you know, I think through tremendous amount of experience, there's an end, you know, like, and also because there was a lot of people that kind of got into the space and and all of us sort of got together and agreed upon certain kind of like boundaries of where things are and how things should be there, there, you know, like you don't need to know where, who wore the watch to be able to know that it's correct for its timepiece because it's very, it's very sort of like mechanical. And it's also, there's a production series where, there was more than one produced. If everything was one of one, it'd be very hard to kind of like say, this is the only one available. Mm. But but since there were thousands of each one produced, it's not, if you know, and if you've been in, around the space for a long time, you could kind of memorize and look and know and have a like understanding of all the different components. But it takes a long time to be able to get to that. I, I Again, I go to back to, you know, analogies with cars because I think, I think it's mechanical. If you saw, there's people that will look at a Mustang from like a certain era and tell you like this, the wheels are the right production for that car or, you know, or the hood. Um, 
there was a rare version where a hood had a special kind of inlet or something. So it's the same thing. So maybe I gloss over this because I don't really have a hard time because I've been around it for so long that I don't really have a hard time being able to kind of understand. But mm-hmm. ultimately, when you're buying a watch from a dealer like me, you're kind of sort of buying the dealer, you're buying the person with experience. And I've been around for a very long time and I sell a tremendous amount of watches. I think at this point, I, I calculated it just for fun. I think I've sold literally like bought and sold on my own, like half a billion dollars. You know, oh, wow. we sell, we sell around $50 million a year. So, wow. so the, so the amount of volume is just basically the, and it's like, a, there's just like a level of experience, you know, like 10,000 hours or 20,000 hours of it. So, I'm confident enough to be able to sell something and back it up. And if I did make a mistake and then I would, you know, take it back, I would make it right. I would either replace it or refund the money. The, so, so I think that when you're buying something from like a, like a high end dealer or a person that's been alarmed for a long time and does a lot of volume, you're generally in a very safe position to know that you're not getting anything that's going to be wrong. And if there are components that were replaced with newer components, we we mentioned that because mm-hmm. Rolex took these watches and they a lot of times replaced hands or dials. They would replace bracelets. They saw they didn't see the watches from the perspective of a collector. They saw the, it from the perspective of a watch company that wanted perfection. So mm-hmm. what it comes down to is someone with experience and there is enough information and other dealers that even if you bought a watch and you didn't buy it from me, you could send information out to forums and people. There's a lot of people that understand what is correct and what's wrong. And, uh, and originality is more important essentially than, than sort of, than sort of just that yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so for someone like yourself and is, it's really easy to spot the Folex, right? I mean, to you, it just sticks out like a sore thumb where most people probably oh, can't. Totally. You totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, like in the, a few years ago, like maybe like 10 years ago, it was comically bad. Like when you looked at someone's watch and that was wrong, the proportionality of stuff was so off that it was so glaring that it was almost like embarrassing. Like, I don't even want to point out, you know, like sometimes people are wear fake watches and, you know, maybe they don't want to wear a real watch because they're nervous or maybe they, you know, they're kind of faking it to the make it kind of thing. So I don't judge, you know, that's the thing with watch dealers. I'm not really there to judge what you want to wear, what you want to put on. I'm just there. But I, when you ask me, I'll tell you like, this is wrong or this is correct, or this is ugly, but the, the, the technology and the people that counterfeit these pieces have been getting better and better. And Mm -hmm. so the gap between fake and real is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as people are printing stuff better as the inks get better. So it's a scarier place. And I think it'll continue to being a lot more scary in the future, but there still is a gap between real and fake, which people that have been around this stuff for a very long time, I could tell, but you know, sometimes I'm like, wow, they're doing a really good job or the printing is better or the texture is getting better. Or there's other dealers that, you know, haven't been around for a very long time that are getting fooled with things. So it's uh, it's a scary place when it comes to counterfeits, but Thankfully, that isn't like the that isn't the biggest focus of what I do. Yeah, uh, yeah, so. yeah, very true. Well, I, you you touched on it earlier, and it was leading into my next question. Was I think I was blown away when you said you do fifty million dollars a year in, in watch sales? Is trying to understand how big is 
the vintage watch market as a whole? I don't know. You know what I mean? I think, you know, there's probably, you know, like people throw out numbers for statistics, but there's not really any quantifiable kind of stuff because a lot of stuff is sold privately. It's mm-hmm. not like cars that have VIN numbers that are sold and there's kind of, kind of like a record keeping of sort of uh, like an average. But there there are, if I'm doing 50 and other dealer friends of mine are doing 50, some people, some big companies are doing like 100, you know, there has to be billions of dollars of sales a year of, of these watches. So it's it's a big space. It's a big space, super competitive, you know, and and the the funny thing is, you know, like at the top kind of sort of like top of the pyramid dealer like myself, you know, sometimes I get offered a watch from several smaller dealers and it's the same watch because one person will send an email and that person will send an email with the pictures of someone else and that person will send an email back to me. So, so, uh, it's, it's kind of a huge space with huge numbers, but it's, but there's, there's really just a handful of people that are specialized in the kind of specific vintage Rolex stuff that I, that I work with. Yeah. Well, and I think a follow on question to that would be that maybe many of our listeners would be interested in is, are they an actual store of value? The vintage watches is the market big enough and stable enough for them to be a store of value for a family? Yes. I, you know, and look, it's like the real estate guy telling you you should buy real estate or the, the, the gold guy telling you you should buy gold, but there is a big marketplace. It's robust. It's active. It's, very, very intense. And and there's a lot of, you know, there's hundreds of millions and billions of dollars of transactions happening on a yearly basis. And there's a finite supply. And when you kind of combine those two things, there is, there is generally speaking, you know, like, and, and there's articles written every few years, there's a Wall Street Journal article about how vintage Ferraris are and watches have outperformed the S&P 500 mm-hmm. or like the market, they've become the best investments that you could buy. But I think, so the hard thing is not to understand that, that there is a very, very big appreciation of value over time and relative to other things, it does much better than other things, but it's hard to be, the the, the hard part is to be able to gain access to to watches mm-hmm. where, that's where dealers yeah. like me come in so uh so i think and the nice thing about watches generally speaking when especially in the last big big i remember downturn in 2008 where like a hundred dollar stock becomes a dollar um a ten thousand dollar watch goes back to eight thousand there is mm-hmm. like a floor of depreciation like a like a and and unlike and so like the the, the downside is not bad the upside is generally very good. And also in the worst case scenario, like you could wear it. So there's yeah. people that put the stuff away in a safe and never touch it and use it as sort of like an asset. There's funds that have been set up that are that buy um buy watches and you know, like as like a commodity that they kind of store away in a safe somewhere. But realistically, the the great and fun thing about like having something that appreciates is the sort of like the utility you get along the way. So, you know, you could do it at scale and you could buy like a hundred watches at a certain price point and you could look at it in a spreadsheet and you could, you'll make money, but also like you could buy like a expensive watch and kind of hold it for a few years and, and sell it later when you, you know, when you want to. And unlike art, there's a lot, you know, like, which is sometimes very finicky 
And I know because I bought a lot of different random art. And then if I put that money in the watches, I could have sold it and made a lot more money. And then when you try to sell art, everyone, you know, like mm-hmm. art's like a boat. You know, like yeah. you're like you get really excited when you buy art and you hang it, you tell people how much the value hits it's increasing the value, and then you want to go sell it and you go back to the same art dealers and they're like, Oh, well, you know, the market's very tough on that. I don't know how to sell this piece of art, you know, that I bought at 30,000 10 years ago that I thought would be like 60,000. And I could have bought three red Submariners, which were going for 10,000 a piece. And I could have sold those three Submariners that cost $30,000 at that point when I was trying to sell the art for like a hundred thousand, because I could have Mm -hmm. sold each Submariner for around 35,000. That was the kind of the price point. So, you know, like for me, like you, it's, it's very hard to kind of predict the future. But in, if you look at the last like 20 years, you know, like the, the trajectory has been very good, especially on vintage stuff. You know, modern pieces kind of have ebbs and flows of mm-hmm. uh, there's hype around them, but the vintage market has is, is generally stayed very stable. And it mostly because of this, the finite supply of, of watches. Yeah. Well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll look ahead to wrap this up here in a minute, but uh, I think one thing that's always stuck with me about vintage watches is that a friend told me one time that his his father said son you don't buy a rolex for you you buy it for your grandson and that friend eventually wore his grandfather's rolex and still does today and i thought that was really interesting because they're not just a timepiece; they really can be a family heirloom because True. of their longevity yes there there definitely is a sort of this kind of ability to kind of like pass on something special and and it's because watches in general weren't made with the sort of disposable aspect of what a lot of stuff is made for these days mm. so you know there's not an engineered obsolescence in in yeah. a vintage timepiece you know like and they were designed to last a long time. They were designed to be, especially the vintage sport models, which I specialize in, were meant to be used for diving. Um, that they were your only choice in the sixties and seventies. There were no dive computers, so these yeah. pieces were made to take on a lot of wear. So they are pieces that you can actually hand down to your children or even your grandchildren, and and that's what kind of makes them exciting. You know, I mean, you're not going to be here, but you know, someone else is going to maybe enjoy and think there's going to be a memory that's kind of passed down. And you know, I think people don't realize this, but watches are sort of a very intimate thing. The you know, like you change your clothes, you change your glasses, you move from house to house, and and there's people that sort of like. Every day, the ritual is they put on their watch, they go about their day, their days could be fabulous, their days could be full of sorrow and sadness, but you sort of have this companion that kind of travels with you. And and it's really you and the relationship of what you're wearing that makes you happy. It's, so, you know, sometimes you occasionally get someone that's excited about seeing your watch or but realistically it's you and your like little mechanical buddy that kind of helps you along the way, helps guide to tell you, you know, what time it is, but also kind of is the only constant on you. You know, you change iPhones every every year, every two years, but you know, I've had to watch the same one for the last like 15 years that I wear, you know, like I'm, I'm a dealer. So I change stuff around, but there's this, there's this sort of like really beautiful 
kind of special kind of connection that you have, especially with an object that you carry around with you, you know, like some people have coins, some people have like a very lucky something that they carry, but there is Mm. this kind of like really special thing and a connection with an object, especially if you've had it for like a decade or two decades or half your life, or, and then you give that maybe to someone else, you know, you, all your intention, all your love, all your sacrifices, you know, that you've had in your life, you kind of pass down to someone else that they could actually bring with them and give them utility around your day. It's, it's amazing. So, yeah, I don't want well, to, I, to, I don't but. think there's a better way to wrap up this podcast than that statement right there. Just really getting back to, you know, that a watch can be even more than, than just a utility piece. It can really be a part of, of your personhood that you carry around every single day. I think that's a really neat take on things. So um, with that, we'll, we'll wrap it up, but Yasek, thanks again for hopping on the call. I know it's early um, out there in California, but I appreciate you hopping on and joining me and we'll make sure to uh, have you back on maybe in a year or two and just learn a little bit more about where the market is then. Perfect. No, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, you know, I'm, there's so much information to convey in, in a very, very deep topic, but it's a fun place. You know, like I think that you could get lost in it and which makes it a little bit more interesting than the general sort of like investment portfolio or hobby. It goes deep. And sometimes I think people really need to have connect to that. So, yeah, but I think what I'd love to do is have you back and potentially do a story of watches episode. So finding some watches, you know, that have really neat stories behind them and sharing those. I think where a watch has been is, is just as important as the time it tells. So, yeah, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you guys. You bet. Thanks. Yasek. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinacera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.